Welcome to BC's Corner, episode 19. Welcome, 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 welcome to BC's Corner, uh, this collection of culture conversations with subject matter experts and a variety of culture topics with the goal of encouraging the exchange of thought. I can't start a show without again thanking you all for the continuous likes, shares, subscribes, your engagement, and the various conversations that we've been able to host has truly been a wonder to see over now, over a year of this show. We're in season two currently, but really, uh, it's a cliche, but really the best is yet to come. Working on some really exciting things for the show and your support, of course, makes that possible. And by the way, you're, you're thinking, what can I do to support this amazing show? Well, if you don't subscribe already, do that. But on Spotify and iTunes, if you leave a rate for the show, leave us five stars on iTunes. You can even share some thoughts about the show. That really helps as we continue to invite guests, book guests, and also just spread the exchange of thought across the airwaves. So thank you all for your support. I'm excited to continue on this journey with you all. I I truly believe that we are all in one way or another, we're all one question away from a different life, from a different way of thinking, a different way of being, that expanding outside of our known bubble, that makes us better, that diversifying makes us stronger. Uh, When we put aside popularity, our own judgments and prejudices, when we open ourselves up to explore something new about others, but also ourselves, that that is a bonus. It is in that spirit that I present today's conversation. I've noted that each successive generation in America uh, has become less and less religiously affiliated, and I've been inspired starting last season to speak with faith leaders of various reformations and backgrounds to first, one, understand their belief system, and then two, ask them how they have persisted throughout this generational trend that has been further exacerbated by the pandemic. In season one, we talked through this with the Reverend Lola Wright, who is ordained in ancient wisdom. And today, in season two, we dive into something new. We dive into new thought metaphysics, something that I knew very, very little about, but we dive into in great detail in this upcoming conversation. I just believe that there is value in healthy discourse with those who you were maybe raised to believe you were in opposition with, or better yet, you don't know enough about them to be able to fairly disagree with them. And our guest today, he graciously accepted my invitation And he is none other than the Reverend Galen McDowell. He is the executive minister and senior assistant minister and director of the Johnny Coleman Institute at Christ Universal Temple here in Chicago, Illinois. And this is a faith community of thousands, I might add. He is also an ordained minister for the Universal Foundation of Better Living. And he's a keynote speaker. He's an author of New Thought Metaphysics and Consciousness Transformation. He's also the host of a podcast which has been around for more than a decade. It's called Truth Transforms with Reverend Galen McDowell, and it's a program that provides new thought, metaphysical lessons, and insightful interviews to assist with people's spiritual growth to live better lives through the lens of their reformation. I think that if one is to understand faith in the phenomena that 
our current generations are having with faith and its impact on culture, that it should behoove us to seek understanding it and understanding as many reformations as we can. And I think through conversations like these, we become better, we become more informed. And through this conversation, you get the opportunity to, yes, have that firm introductory understanding of New Thought metaphysics, juxtaposed with fundamentalist Christianity, but also a look into the person, into Reverend McDowell's journey of faith, his personal development, as well as his take on why America is losing her religion. So without further ado, y'all, let's get started with Reverend Galen McDowell. Reverend McDowell, it is an honor to have you on BC's Corner. Uh, what a legacy you have of educating, but also serving in such a high capacity. And it's a true honor that you would say yes, that you would say yes right away, and that you would be so leaned in to this conversation that we're having today. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm ready to rock and roll. And I've heard you speak about your introduction into New Thought and the path that launched you into the work that you do now. It's curious because you didn't attend university right after high school. You joined the workforce. And then one day coming from home, you know, your mom tells you to play this tape and you play this tape on your stereo. And it just so happens to be uh, a service at the church where you now serve as an executive minister. Mm -hmm. uh, and Les Brown, who many would know as a motivational speaker now, who also is a New Thought minister, was leading the service, was leading the conversation. And when you look back on your journey, do you have a, a fortified sense that your path has been predestined and that you are in alignment with it? Or is it more or less random? I think there's always choice. So let me put that right out there. I believe in choice. I believe we're always at choice. And I also believe that there is a divine guidance and a divine alignment that we have intuition that guides us. And there's sometimes there's just things in the universe that synchronize us to lead us on the way when we pay attention to it. So, you know, my mother saying, hey, play this tape because my room was just next to the kitchen on my stereo and I'm in my room and I'm just listening to this guy talk that I had never heard of before. And I was like, man, this makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, hey, man, let me borrow this tape. You know, I remember saying that to her and I just listened to it over and over again. I said, you got another tape like this? And then the next tape was uh, Dr. Dennis Kimbrough, who many people know is one of the main business professors at Clark Atlanta University, but is most well known for writing Thinking We're Rich, A Black Choice, which was based upon the outline of Napoleon Hill that made for African-Americans before he made his transition. And then she let me borrow a tape. She brought the tape of the Reverend Dr. Johnny Coleman to me. She was like, I know you like those two guys, but I want you to listen to her. And it was a cassette tape called, I think the title was God and Man. And it blew me away. It was like a new world had opened. It was like literally like, you know, it says in the gospels, the dove coming out of the heavens. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was an enlightening moment. And to give further context to your background, you've been teaching new thought and metaphysics since 1996 and studying, of course, years prior, as you were just mentioning there, for the person who was raised Catholic, Lutheran, evangelical, non-denominational, Muslim, a bit of Buddhist, most religions 
there's a difference between there. There's a subtle difference. And, and I've heard you articulate it that most religions will tell you that there is something irrevocably wrong with you and that they have the only remedy, that they have the only solution. And you have said that you come from the point of view and new thought comes from the point of view that there is something radically right about you. And I am here to help you discover it. There is something right about who we are in humanity. And we just have to break down the barriers and open ourselves up to then receive it, to then go and pursue it. Would you say that statement serves as a formidable introduction into the work of new thought metaphysics in the core approach? Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, it's kind of funny that I came up with that term, that there's something radically right about you. While I was at an event that our mutual friend, the Reverend Lola Wright, invited me to at uh, Chicago Ideas, downtown Chicago. And I was talking to college students primarily in the audience. So, you know, we had a panel of different religious leaders, and I was just trying to explain it to them the uniqueness and the distinction of new thought without disrespecting anybody else's religious beliefs. And I just simply said, yes, new thought comes from the perspective that there's something radically right about you, that there's a wholeness within you, that there is nothing to fix. There's only that which is to discover. You have to discover and uncover your own potential, your own power, your own ability to create the life that you desire, your own oneness with God, that you're one with your source, you're one with the creator, not in some religious terminology way, essence of who you are. You know, I often tell my students that you are individualized expression of the one presence and one power that we call God. That changes your perspective of who you are, because most people have tried to promote and produce their self-image based upon outer circumstances. And what New Thought is saying is that your self-image is built on who you are spiritually, that you're a spiritual being living in a spiritual universe governed by spiritual law. Yes, you have a body. Yes, you have a mind. But the essence of who you are, the real, true, authentic you, is spiritual. You say that when you were hearing these tapes originally, listening to Johnny Coleman and listening to Les Brown, that a light bulb went off for you. What were the barriers of entry for you? to receiving that idea that there is something radically right with you and that you then needed to go and discover it? Well, I think that obviously growing up in the religious Black culture of church gives you great benefits. And then sometimes there's some, in my opinion, for my experience, let me be clear when I say that, for my experience, some drawbacks. And the drawbacks for me, there was just some answers that just didn't make sense to me in the old church, you know, my grandmother used to drag my sister and I to four, sometimes four and five churches on a Sunday. Church was all day. People don't know what that looks like now. <laughs> it was all day. My grandmother would sing and play the piano. So she would go to the different churches and sing and play. She was Sister Emma. And she would have prayer meetings at her house on Fridays. And I was picking up ladies that were slain in the spirit off the living room floor. I know church. And you know, but when I started asking questions about life that didn't seem to add up to me, what I started questioning things. And I can remember before this CUT experience, maybe a few months before, maybe six, seven months before, it was uh, I was I bought a tape from Boogie Down Productions, Karis One, people the, the, the rapper Karis One. He had a song on the album named Poisonous Products. 
and I can remember a particular part of the song where he said, and this really was a wake-up call that really made me start asking deeper questions. He said, Christians keep saying, accept Jesus in your life. Christianity was founded 300 years after Christ. Who do you accept in your life? And he said, now, what do you accept in your life? Christianity or the teachings of Christ? Make up your mind. They're not the same thing. In mm-hmm. 1992, the blind leads the blind right into the ground. They can't tell you where God is because they haven't found him first. Put down your Bible and release your sins. The Bible is dead. God is alive. Within, metaphysically speaking, I'll come clearer. You want to see God, take a look in the mirror. I haven't heard that song in years. It's still impressed on my subconscious mind. I can recite it like now off the top of my head. And I can remember going to my buddies, you know, I was at work in the neighborhood. Guys like, what was he saying on this song? Like, what do you think he meant? Do you think he meant that literally? So I think that that was part of the opening process. And I had an elect, a mom that was eclectic in her study. Yes, she had a Pentecostal sanctified background because my grandmother was sanctified. But she was studying a whole bunch of different things, new thought, new age, Buddhism, different other. And I had no interest in any of it, you know, especially when I got of age when those girls are cute and I want to play basketball with my buddies. That was kind of the end of that conversation in church in general. But I do think that the conversation around transformation is there's some aspects of it that we can't humanly explain. And I think that the human intellect wants to put everything in its own box so we can say this is this and this is that. I don't know why I was so open and receptive to this message at such an early age. Yes, I had some background with religious background, which... I understood the power of God, the power of prayer. I seen it demonstrated in healing with my grandmother, praying with people and breakthroughs that people wouldn't believe. Family members living extended past uh, what they were supposed to when the doctor gave them the prognosis of death, people getting out of trouble in situations. My grandmother would pray people out of anything. So I understood that aspect. But there's a fullness of the time and the soul that I can't explain. I just can't. You know, I, what I can say is that. Like Jesus said that, you know, the kingdom of God is like a man sowing seeds. Right. And the different type of grounds determine the receptivity. I don't know what's going on in another person's soul. I don't know what they came here to learn. I don't know what they came here to do. I don't know what they came here to experience. That seed hit my mind. It was fertile soil. And that I do know. So the the similarity within our background is I was also raised in a very fundamentalist background. We were a bunch of Pentecostals running around dancing. But I think with my background, (laughs) I got a very strong foundation in the Word of God. And that is always something that you can't take away from me. It comes out of nowhere. Biblical jokes are something that I find very funny because the knowledge base is there for me, whereas someone who didn't have that experience, they they wouldn't have that same affinity uh, Mm -hmm. or that same jargon. And very similar to you, I know church. I know church very, very well with many Christian denominations the core tenet is that, you know, you accept Jesus Christ into your life and you are saved from your sins. And I've heard you say previously in your teachings that God is not keeping score or he is not a scorekeeper. And that's not the correct way to view God from your perspective. Could you speak more to that? Yes. So as you mentioned earlier, one of the things that I try to emphasize to people consistently is often religion presents the position that there's something wrong with you. 
first of all, they have to convince you that something is wrong with you because you don't show up with the belief there's something wrong with me. Then they have to convince you that they have the only remedy. No other philosophy, teaching, or religion has any remedy. They have the one remedy. Now, part of that challenge is when you're working with with, with that type of belief, then it says that you have to accept the allegory of Adam and Eve in, in the Garden of Eden as literal history, that Adam and Eve were real people who ate a f- fruit from a tree they weren't supposed to. And because of that, everybody else is under the curse of that sin. And only through Jesus can you be lifted from it. Now, here's some fundamental challenges that I have with that belief. First, if if Jesus dying, accepting Jesus as your savior is the only way to not go to hell, because that's basically what it's saying, that every human being born is predestined to hell because of what Adam and Eve did. And Jesus is the only way out. Now, if we look at the, just the globe, the planet Earth, this little section of Judea and Galilee, it wasn't really spread well the first 300 years. Roman Empire, okay, next thousand years, Europe, parts of Africa, and bits and pieces over here and there. Christianity wasn't worldwide known until the 19th or 20th century. So what if you're the Native American in 827 AD? What if you're the person in Brazil, South America, Central America? What if you're an Australian Aborigine? What if you're in Japan? What if you're in China? What if you're on the island of Taiwan? What if you're in what we now call Canada or any part of North, North, Central, or South America? Billions of people lived without even the possibility of hearing about a Jesus, hearing about a, a, the God of the Bible or the Bible in general. They'd even have the opportunity of this particular form of salvation that is taught. So if we believe that that is true, then God is the worst manager of salvation in history. It's the worst delivery system ever created. How can you create a system of salvation that the majority of the planet doesn't know for another 20 centuries? So that good person in China, that good person on the Okinawan Island, that good person in what we would now call South Africa, that they would have to go through the desert to get that message down. That person that was in Greenland, that person that that was in what we would now call, uh, you know, Mexico. All of those people, all of those people are in hell. So from your view, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior is a redundant act? No, no. So, you know, the thing about it is those are theological terms. One of the things that even though people who grow up in the church, they read the Bible, they read it from a particular point of view. The church produces a view of Jesus as the Christ of faith. When you study the Bible academically, you're studying the historical Jesus and you separate the two. There's a historical Jesus, what the historical man did and taught. And then how is he portrayed? That is the Christ of faith. Even in what we call the Gospels, the Gospels are not trying to present to you the historical Jesus. They're presenting to you their version of their Christ of faith. So I look at it this way. The Gospels aren't biographies. They're faith documents. 
and it's like a ring, you know, I, I have a wedding ring on now, but it, say for instance, one of those rings that, you know, they had the diamond popping out. Jesus is the diamond. The gospels are the setting that you put the diamond in. They were trying to figure out, and this is a magnificent thing. because I love the study of Jesus. What was it about this man that was so fabulous and fantastic and holistic that monotheistic Jews in the first century could not think of God without thinking of him? It makes you stop and pause. So even as a metaphysical thinker, I, I stop and pause on that. From a new thought perspective, we're not trying to get people from the afterlife hell, and we're not trying to get you into the afterlife heaven. We teach that heaven and hell are states of consciousness, states of mind. But if we look at it from the standpoint of heaven being the spiritual idea, ideal, the divine harmony, the realization of omnipresent good, and hell being the experiences that give us a sense of separation from God, if we say, I've been to hell and back. Because they know that these experiences are inconsistent with the goodness of God. We know that without even having to have religion. So for me, my movement, you might have people who have various versions of how they teach Jesus. Primarily, we teach him as a wayshore. In other words, Jesus is the great example, not the great exception. All right. So we're to follow Jesus into the Christ consciousness. We are to follow Jesus through his teachings, and we use him as a model to follow versus a person to worship. So there's a difference between teaching Jesus and what Jesus taught. Christianity traditionally has tried to teach Jesus the Christology, who is he, et cetera, et cetera. And that's great, and I don't have any issue with that. But as a metaphysical Christian, I'm looking at it from the standpoint, and my movement is looking at it from the standpoint of, is it possible that what was true about Jesus is also true about me? That we all have the divine within us, that we are all yes. divine. That divine Christ nature and Christ in metaphysics is God's idea of itself. It's not a last name. So when you start talking about this divine nature, this divine wholeness, this divine power, this divine grace, is accessible to all people because it is within all people, but it's our job to unfold it. So I don't want to say, okay, if all of the things that were attributed to Jesus are literally factually true, I'm not saying I'm nowhere near on that level. No, and, and anybody else I know, the only people I know that walk on water are the people who spill it on the floor. Is it possible? See, that's the question. There's a scapegoat aspect to Jesus Christ died for my sins. All right. And I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't say that because it's clearly in, in the Bible. So I'm not a hypocrite in saying that the Bible doesn't say that. But why? You know, primarily that was what the Apostle Paul wrote, taught. And Paul had a different Christology. Paul taught the cross. Jesus taught the kingdom. We can talk about that later if you want to. These ancient Hebrew people came out of a sacrificial system. In other words, something had to die to appease God. All right. They would bring the animals to the temple. They would be sacrificed, et cetera. They would also have their day of atonement where they would take a goat and they would curse the goat and put the sins of the goat and drive it out to die into the wilderness. That was the scapegoat. So there is a psychological aspect of people projecting what their own inner turmoil, which human beings have, onto Jesus. 
He's used almost as a psychological tool. So some people really get a real spiritual relief when they accept Jesus as their personal savior and Jesus died for their sins and Jesus is the way for them to get to heaven. There is a legitimate psychological relief because it's a scapegoat process. But maybe that was the way they viewed Jesus because within their context, you have a man with this that's demonstrating this truth at a high level and is teaching this teaching at a high level, and then he's crucified. And then you got to make sense out of it. All right. Whatever resurrection means or whatever, if you want to drill down on that too, we can deal with that too. But he was killed. Now, these people will have to say, what does it mean? So like most people, they look back into their faith tradition to try to make sense of what's happening now. And that's what they did. Okay. We have to justify our belief that this man was the Messiah. So now we got to go in, go back, and then we create the narrative that he fulfilled these particular scriptures. So when people often say, well, Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, I would say no more likely he was interpreted through these prophecies. They wrote them in the Gospels. That doesn't mean it really literally happened. It doesn't mean he literally said it. That's a, again, that's a deeper conversation if you want to get into as well. So I say all that to say this. A person's view of Jesus is their view. That's fine. I love the study of Jesus, the historical version. I love the metaphysical interpretation stuff. I love all of it. But when we start looking at it from the standpoint that God could not just forgive if that's the issue, that someone innocent or something innocent has to die for something or someone who has done the sin, that means that God is punishing the innocent. Two, if the belief is, well, God came down as Jesus, that means that God is punishing itself to forgive us when God is omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience could just do it itself. So all I'm just saying is, okay, let's just think about this stuff and look at it a little bit differently. And if you want to accept the, that way of thinking, fine. But everything has its own consequences and thought. If you believe this, then Let's deal with the conversation about all those people throughout history that never had an opportunity to even hear about Jesus, the Bible, or God from the Hebrew, Judeo-Hebrew perspective. What about all of those people? Is it grace to let the, all of those people burn in hell for eternity? Not to learn a lesson, Brian. See, that's the thing. It's not to learn a lesson. It's an eternal punishment. Jesus said in, in the Gospel of Matthew that um, what father, if his son asked for, would give him a stone, or if he asked for fish, would give him a scorpion. And it says, you, he says, uh, being evil, and we got to understand what that word is. Even in the Greek, it's funny. When you listen to people in Aramaic who say, what would have been Jesus's word in Aramaic when he said that? They said that that means, means you make mistakes. You make errors. In other words, sometimes we just don't get it right. So if we who don't get it right know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give to us? It's just looking at the perspective. You spoke to the binary that heaven, hell, divine good, divine evil. But I've heard you articulate that God's intention is for us to live a healthy, happy, and a prosperous life. And God's absolute nature is good. In absolute good, and you've articulated that 
in your view, the way that it's articulated of accepting Christ as your savior, not necessarily making a lot of sense the way that you've broken it down, how do we then explain the divine evil aspect? Or is there divine evil from your perspective? Okay. I would never put the word divine and evil together, ever, ever. So I was I was going to jump in. I was just waiting for you to finish talking just on that. So there's a relativity to life. And what I mean by that is when New Thought people start talking about absolute good, they're not talking about good in the context of how we look at relativity, or you said the binary. Absolute good, what we're saying is, is simply this, and then I'll deal with the evil part. We're saying that God's essential nature or character is absolute good. We're also saying that God is not a person. We teach that God is presence, God is principle, God is divine mind. Somebody upstairs likes me, the big man upstairs, this anthropomorphic concept of God that most people carry. That is not a new thought perspective. So let's go there first. I love the term invisible energy intelligence. Hmm. That's my favorite. Now, let's get past that. So this invisible energy intelligence that we call God we teach that God's nature or essential character is absolute good. And we teach that God's, since God's essential character or nature is absolute good, God's will is consistent with God's nature. So God cannot will for someone something that is inconsistent with his nature. Now, what do we deal with? How do we deal with this thing called evil? And where does it come from? I don't use the word reality of evil. In Christian metaphysics, the word reality, we use that to represent that which is permanent, eternal, enduring. All right. So God's truth, the life, the love, the et cetera, these attributes of God we teach are, are eternal. Experiences that we call evil, and sometimes what we relatively call good, are relative. I'm using the word to explain the word. Evil, in my opinion, is a couple of things. One, it is the byproduct. First of all, it is always always the byproduct of either human action or human perception. There's no scenario where a person can come up that, that can say it's not human action or human perception. Let me give you an example. We know that actions done to people, violence, destruction, robbery, murder, you know, and sexual assault and all these other type of things, those are all the byproducts of human thinking and human action. All right. Now, when you start saying something is perception, if there's a hurricane and it's going through the Atlantic Ocean and it doesn't destroy anything, is it evil? Is it evil even if it does? Or is that human perception? That earthquake, is that evil? Or is that human perception? That flood? Even though it might impact people, is it evil or is it perceived because of the impact that it happened to human beings? We give meaning to things. So we get to decide based upon perception, this is good and this is evil and this is why. All right. So let me just ask you, Brian, outside of human perception and human action, name me something that's evil. Outside of human perception, I... And I don't human know action. If I can step. I, I don't think I can step out of my my human perception because I would naturally say murder is evil. I would say rape is evil. Mm -hmm. I would say uh, lying to a certain extent and level is evil. I think anything that aims to harm the innocent is evil. Right now, does that require 
any level of supernatural for that to happen. No. So and no, so, you could argue, I mean, you could say that those without accepting Christ into their lives, those who don't live by, you know, those Judeo-Christian values would then go and commit those acts because they are the other, which I wouldn't necessarily say is what I believe, but if I were to try to make that make sense, that's what I would yeah. say. So so what you're saying is we have to create a pretzel to make evil divine. And what I'm saying is that I'm not saying that evil doesn't exist. What I'm saying is that it is a human product because we have choice, sometimes immaturity and sometimes in the lack of spiritual awareness and lack of spiritual consciousness um, at the lower levels of consciousness, the lower levels of vibrational thought, the lower levels of belief, whereas where we are still in our tribalism, where we're still in racism, homophobia, all that stuff, which is all of our forms of tribalism. And the tribalism is basically this, Brian, from my perspective, and I'm not saying that I'm right. The tribalism is I'm on God's side and you're not. That's the first level. Then the second level of tribalism is, is God perceives you wrong, so I perceive you wrong. The third level of tribalism is, therefore, God will condemn you. So I will condemn you. Some people take it to another level, which is God will punish you. So I will too. And we see so much of that in our world now. Right. So whether it, it doesn't make a difference, you call it racism, sexism, homophobia, or any other thing. It all goes back to those four levels. I believe I'm right because I'm on God's side. And if I'm on God's side and you have a belief that's different than mine, then you obviously are not on God's side. And if you're obviously not on God's side, that means that God is condemning you. That means I get to condemn you. And since you're obviously not on God's side, I get to treat you in a way that's consistent with the way God is, treats those who are not on God's side. Because they have religious and social, not just religious, but social tribalism. We're seeing this even with our political parties now, where there can be no middle ground. There can be no coming together to create laws that work better for everybody. There is no compromise. That's political tribalism, but it all goes back to tribalism. So with evil then being a product of human creation, veneered or veiled with human perception, depending on what is right, what is wrong, how do you perceive in your reformation sin? The things okay. that are wrong with in the perception of God? Um, believed I by some. Right. Yeah. So I don't have that perception. So sin in ancient Hebrew just meant basically to miss the mark, a mistake. All right. And of course, we read the Bible in the 21st century mindsets without looking at it from the perception that the ancient Hebrew culture was a theocracy. We live in a democracy. A theocracy means that the religion is the rule of law. We have that in many Islamic countries right now. Well, you know, they don't have a constitution that's inconsistent with the Quran, for instance, or, or as they interpret it, it's probably a better way of saying that. Now, <laughs> I, I got so many th thoughts going in my mind here right now. Ask the question one more time, because I want to make sure I answer it properly. Well, we, we've talked about evil from human perspective, but then some people oh, sin. evil as sin, yeah, and that's so, so. evil from God's perspective. 
Okay, so so seeing from the standpoint of spiritual principle is that which is not in alignment with the divine attributes to give you the results you desire. So for instance, if it is missing the mark when I seek to produce harmony in an experience, but I'm choosing hate, anger, judgment, and condemnation. Now, we can look at that as saying God condemns that. That's a sin versus it's not getting us the results we desire. Because here's the thing, and this might sound a little mystical, but I just have to teach it my way as I understand it. I'm not saying this is how everybody teaches it. When you start to anybody in every in every culture that those who do a, the contemplative study of God, meaning through their prayer, meditative work, they're sitting in the silence, their contemplation on Scripture. There's some consistencies that show up. In other words, whether you're Buddhist, you're Taoist, Hindu, Christian, Muslim, various versions of whatever. There's a mystical component that shows up as love seeks to express itself through you. This divine wisdom seems to express through you. This divine understanding seems to express through you. There's a divine grace that seems to express through you that all of these religious leaders in different centuries and in different countries with different circumstances all tend to write about being the same. And so is it possible that their divine spiritual principles, their divine ideas that when allowed to express in our lives at our level of understanding produces levels of harmony consistent with the ideas or principles. So when we start talking about sin, sin is not being in alignment with your own true spiritual wholeness. It's a sin to think of yourself as less than individualized expression of God. It is a sin from the standpoint of if I've created out of a being of love to be out of harmony with that love, not sin from the standpoint of judgment, because that's just, in my opinion, that's old religious talk. I look at it from the standpoint of, is this in harmony with divine truth? Is this in harmony with spiritual principle? Is this in harmony with universal law? Or it's not. For me, that's sin. Not I had sex with somebody before I was married or the wrong kind of sex, according to whoever's religious belief. Or, you know, I wore this type of clothes and it got this cloth on it. Or is my face covered or not? Or did I did do this religious ritual or not? In my opinion, all of that stuff is human stuff. People trying to understand their experience of the sacred and divine. And we come up with our own ways of doing that. But. Have you ever seen the movie Enter the Dragon by Bruce Lee? It's the scene in the movie where Bruce Lee is at the Shaolin Temple and he's talking to one of the monks, his teacher, in the movie at least, because he wasn't a Shaolin person. And he's teaching a little boy how to uh, perform a kick. He's telling the boy, show me what you got, basically. The boy shows a kick and he says, tell me how it feels. And the little boy says, I think. And Bruce Lee hits him on the head. And he said, don't think, feel. Now, people stop there, but that's not the real lesson. What he said afterwards was the real lesson. He said, it's like a finger pointing at the moon. If you concentrate on the finger, you miss all the heavenly glory, which is an old Taoist proverb he basically played around with. The Bible, the religion, that's the finger 
pointing to something. We've deified the scripture. We've deified the rituals. We've deified people where they were pointing to an experience of the sacred, of the divine, of this wholeness, of this presence that we, some people call spirit, God, divine mind, or whatever the different terminology they use in their own individual religions. We get caught up arguing about the finger and we never get the experience because we're debating the finger. So then in what context do you place the Bible and what context do you place the Trinity as someone who has studied it, but as someone who is looking to the moon and not the finger? Yeah. Well, for me, as I, I tell people all the time, the Bible is a human product. It's sacred to me because it's a part of my community. It's not sacred because of its nature in and of itself, because the Bible is an anthology. It's a collection of books. With people in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, it was their concepts and understandings of God and life and a lot of other stuff based upon their worldview, their politics, their national national stuff, their worship, a whole bunch of things. And the same thing, excuse me, with the New Testament, them trying to understand Jesus, Jesus's teachings and what it meant to life. Now, when we look at it from that from that perspective versus when I read in Colossians, I'm reading what God actually thinks or said, it shifts the perspective. We should be asking, okay, who is Paul talking to? Who is Paul? What did Paul think? Who is Paul teaching, talking to, or writing to? And what is the other things that we need to put in this context? But when we go to what God said, you know, you can't do this. And Leviticus said, you can't do this, that, and the other. It's an easy out without thought and contemplation. So I don't view the Bible as my authority. I view what it's pointing to as the one presence and one power, the universal law, the, the divine grace, the infinite presence, the unlimited possibilities that we call God. So I'm not going to sit up there and tell people that, for instance, you used earlier the word of God as you reference the Bible. That's an old school Pentecostal, sanctified Baptist fundamentalist belief. But the Bible doesn't say in the beginning was the Bible and the Bible was with God and the Bible was God. The word is not the Bible. Hmm. Okay. Because the Bible was not in the beginning with God. You, you get the difference what I'm saying? I think you can take something exceptionally literally and hold it as a sacred space in not only your own heart, but in the community without deifying it. And to a certain extent, people have, they deify their scriptures versus realizing that the scriptures should be pointing them to the experience of God. Yeah. And when you say that scripture in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, with that scripture, my understanding was never that it was the Bible, but that it was Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. that's why he holds the sacred place that he has, because when he came down, as we say, he overturned the law and that he established the way that we should treat each other and the principles in which we should approach life to achieve a level of spiritual maturity and be able to get away with a lot of the things that we see now when you were speaking about political tribalism, I began to think about, I, I watched the Republican primary debate a few weeks ago in Milwaukee, and it disturbed me that so many individuals on that stage, all of them, would claim to be Christians, 
but advocated for lethal force on our southern border equated to Ukraine, that they would promote policies that would take away women's autonomy and criminalize uh, women taking steps to make sure that they could get rid of a pregnancy by rape or incest. When I look at their party and the amount of antagonism that they've had towards minority communities, but then also to the queer community, to the trans community. And a lot of that originally was done in the name of the Bible, was done in the name of God. And so when you make the point of evil being attributed to our human perception and our human action, I understand that. When you go further into New Thought, and there's such an emphasis on the power of the mind and the power of our consciousness and the power of our thoughts, when you say that we ourselves are divine, you're not referencing what, you know, in Christianity, we would say the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't be saying we're divine in that way. Or how would you articulate that? I would the divinity say- that we have. I would say that I would just use Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It talks about us being made in the image and likeness of God. You know, I would talk about other various scriptures that promote that. You know, the Jesus quoting Psalm 82, 6, you know, in John 10, 34, you know, ye are God's type of thing. I would talk about, you know, Jesus saying works I do, even greater works you can do. You can do an even greater. So when we start talking about divine, we're saying that if you are an individualized expression of this one presence and one power, if God is divine, then there's a divinity within you. I'm not talking about person's human personality. I'm not talking about, you know, the various ways in which we can perceive and experience life. We're saying that there is a divine whole. If you took a look at it, like, for instance, an apple, apple has a core, right? it has the meat and it has the skin all over the apple. You know, people eat the apple, okay, uh, you know, that's great. But the essence of the apple is really in the seed. Because what the seed can do is duplicate itself. It can produce trees that can produce more apples with more seeds in them. We're saying that the human being has the seed of God within it. That the human being has that divine spark of truth within it. We're saying that that spiritual beings, true, authentic nature is spiritual. As Jeremiah chapter one, verses four and five states, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Who was the you that God knew before the biological act of the sperm cell and the ovarian egg clash? Who was the you before you had a name, before you had a race, before you had a nationality, before you had parents and siblings and uh, education and a career, uh, orientation, uh, or money or Lord knows problems. Who is the you that God knew? Our contemplation is that there is a spiritual you that preceded birth and transcends what we call death. That's the difference. We're using the same scriptures that everyone else uses, but we're also saying, okay, let's, let's, let's look at this again and let's drill down on it. Because sometimes people, especially in the modern culture, believe that fundamentalism is the way things were always taught. But people who do studies on early Christianity realize that many of the ideas that New Thought and other mystical traditions taught were alive at that time. But the winner writes history. A brand of Christianity won, and then they had the whole Roman Empire to back them up. Anything that was inconsistent with that, those people's documents were destroyed and churches devalued and a whole bunch of other processes till one form of Christianity became dominant. 
All right. So you see this still in the book of Acts when it was the Jewish Christians versus Paul and his Gentile group. This has always happened. This has always happened. So all we're saying is that maybe Jesus saying the kingdom of God within you really is true. Maybe Jesus saying it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom is true. Maybe, just maybe, you could do the works I do, you can do an even greater things might be true. Maybe. And maybe if we can understand the principles and the universal laws that Jesus taught, maybe we can reproduce some of these results. And new thought as a whole, which one of the things that I didn't mention earlier, started off as a reformation of healing. In other words, new thought started off completely and solely as a spiritual healing method. People in you know were studying these scriptures and things of that nature without getting into a whole bunch of history about it. We're trying to figure out in the midst of the mid and late 19th century, early 20th century, where there's no real regulated medical science in the majority of the United States. How are these people demonstrating healings from these incurable diseases through the power of their mind by allowing their minds to contemplate higher levels of truth, which can then be demonstrated in their everyday lives? When they realize that it worked for healing, then they could work for other stuff, too. You, you talk about healing, and there's a story that you told on a podcast, and it drew me in. But you talk about how you had a chest cold at a young age, and your grandmother told you to put some Vicks on your chest. If she was a real one, she would have told you to put some Vicks on your feet, too. But <laughs> you put some Vicks on your chest, and the Vicks ended up triggering an asthma attack for you. And luckily, you made it to the hospital in time. But this was around the time that you were pursuing your immersion or deepening into new thought. And you say within months your condition was gone. Would you mind further contextualizing that, articulating the the subconscious mind contributing to sickness or combating sickness? Yeah. So first of all, I didn't have asthma before that. I thought I had a chest cold. Got I was it. feeling some whatever. My grandmother, of course, old school Mississippi grandmother. Vicks Vapor Rub, you know, they had their home remedies, you know, honey and vinegar. I don't know if you ever had the honey and vinegar. <laughs> Robitussin was like. <laughs> that's heavenly. That's like, that's up there with the anointing oil. Yeah, Robitussin, <laughs> boy, God. But anyway, so, uh, you know, I put the Vicks Vapor Rub on my chest later that day, was out the whole day almost. When I came home, I was having problems breathing. Uh, you know, I told my mother I couldn't breathe. She drove me to the hospital, barely got me there. If I'd have been 10 minutes later, I probably wouldn't be here today. You know, basically what the doctors were telling me when I got to the hospital. I just got there in time. It was the beginning of my study. I'd just literally been, in, I made three Sunday services at Christ Universal Temple and signed up for a class that I had yet taken. So I bought some books and I read it. So because New Thought focuses so much on spiritual wholeness that while I was in the hospital and the doctors are telling me, you know, that uh, the Vicks Vapor Rub activated a dormant asthma. Hmm. And this was the situation. My my mind wasn't processing that. And my mom was pacing back and forth. And I br had my two books in the emergency room bed with me. I grabbed them before I left. And I said to my mother, I said, you know, Ma, according to these books, I don't have to have this if I don't want it. And I was in the hospital four and a half days. Anybody that's ever had asthma attack knows they don't keep you four and a half days for asthma attack. They treat you. You might stay overnight, maybe. And then they let you go. I was in the hospital four and a half days. That should let people know just how serious it was and the amount of damage that was done. Hmm. 
Then I had to stay home for another two weeks. No work, no going out outside for any reason. It was cold January, um, January, early February. So no going outside for two weeks. When I first got out, I was determined to understand what Reverend Coleman, these, those books and this New Thought community was saying about spiritual wholeness because I didn't want that experience. So what I did was the first place I went to my first day out was my first day of my class at in the Johnny Coleman Institute, which is our teaching arm at Christ Universal Temple, which now I'm blessed to be the director of. Wow. I showed up for my class. I walked to the bookstore. Almost every dollar I had in my pocket, I bought books. I brought like maybe 12 to 15 books that day. I read all of them probably in a week to two. I was trying to understand to get a comprehension because I knew the Reverend Coleman's story, Christ Universal Temple started because she had six months to live and she found new thought. And I'm like, well, if I can understand what she understood, I don't have to have this. So, you know, I started working with studying spiritual principles. And I'm a big believer in studying spiritual principles. What can rise my thought above my average normal everyday thinking to start to contemplate spiritual wholeness, divine truth, the divine life within my body, that my every cell in my body has intelligence, life and substance. And that intelligence directs the life and the substance forms based upon what the intelligence is telling the life. When and got a prayer from that Reverend Coleman would use early on. And this is the prayers from um, the prayer of faith. Trying to remember the lady's name, Hannah Moore Kahas. If a person puts in unity, prayer of faith, it should pop up. And it is God is my help in every need. God does my every hunger feed. God walks beside me, guides my way through every moment of the day. And now I'm wise and now I'm true, patient, kind, and loving too. All things I am can do and be through Christ, the truth that is in me. God is my health. I can't be sick. God is my strength, unfailing quick. God is my all. I know no fear. Since God, love, and truth are here. I would say that prayer sometimes 25 times a day. I had other prayers and scriptures on three by five cards, affirmations I would write out, and then scriptures on the back of the card. I was studying three to five books a week. I was listening to the tapes. I was listening. It became, you know, scripture says, I'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on thee. I became a, it became my central focus to understand who I am in God and who God is in me because both were necessary. And through that process of that exceptionally intense level of, I'm not thinking about anything else other than my body is the divine life of God, that, and God is not sick. God is not despondent. God has energy. God has vitality. God is every cell in me, and my mind, and my body, and everything. I was conditioning my subconscious mind to accept this new pattern to remove the old patterns that was based upon a lifetime, and for those who believe it, lifetimes of conditioned thinking. To can I get my mind in alignment with the divine truth that is already within me? And because Emmett Fox, I don't know if you remember Emmett Fox, he's a great new thought writer. He wrote, There's no such thing as undemonstrated understanding. If I can understand this truth, it'll demonstrate itself. To make a long story short, between late January and May, I received a complete healing. I was on two inhalers and pills, very large pills for my lungs. I don't say that I used to tell this story, but I tell it now because people need to hear it. I got to, when I went for my last doctor checkup, he couldn't find anything wrong. 
And I told him I haven't had any relapses, et cetera. I still, you know, I'm healed. And he's like, yeah, but the damage that was done, you know, even though I can't find anything, you need to keep the inhalers. You need to keep the pills. You need to be mindful if you're going to be play sports with your friends. I love to play basketball and other stuff at the park, the football and other stuff. I, I'm a martial artist. This guy's basically telling me not to be physical or if I'm going to do it, be exceptionally careful and have both of those inhalers and the medicine with me at all times. And I'm not saying that that's not other people's experience. I didn't want that. So I went home, I prayed about it, and I had this, a sense of peace, Brian, that I cannot humanly explain. I got up. I'm 20 years old, 20. And I said to my mother, Ma, I'm healed. And I'm going to prove that this truth works when so I'm not going to be here. And I threw the inhalers and the pills and the garbage in front of her. Now, as a parent now, I realize if my child did that to me, I would be terrified. She never questioned it. Now, one time, that story taught me a few lessons. One, I did the work and the transformation showed itself up. It showed up. Okay. I was immersed in the study of divine wholeness. And it manifested itself. So nobody can tell me that you can't spiritually heal. I did it. That was 30 years ago this year. And I've never had a relapse. I go to the doctor multiple times a year. I get blood tests. I get you know urine samples. I do all the checkup stuff. I'm good. The other thing it told me was the people you have around you matter. My mother would have been maybe one of one of two people, her, maybe my grandmother, that could have said, Baby, I don't want you to do that. I would have kneeled to what I didn't need to kneel to. People who believe in what's possible for you is a central component to growing. Because if she had said no, I wouldn't have did it. Because she it's my mother. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and sometimes people don't realize the people you have around you, and I ain't gonna say I wouldn't have done it. It would have been more of a struggle because I would have had it would have, I would have had guilt as a son that I was worrying my mother. But my mother stood with me, even though the stakes were potentially fatal. Now, I don't tell people to throw their medicine away. You have to deal with truth at the level of your truth. I've had to take medicine since then for other stuff. And God be the glory that it exists. I consider all of that God in its own way. But Going beyond a believer to someone who experiences is something that's different. When you understand and have experienced, and to use an old school term, you touched the hem of the garment for yourself, then nobody can convince you that it's not real. Because what I went through was not humanly explained. They can say, I don't know what a term for remission of asthma is. But it just happened to coincide with the fact that I was doing all of this consciousness conditioning work to understand my own spiritual nature, my own spiritual wholeness, to recognize the life activity within me, to realize that every breath I take is the breath of God and God's breath isn't constricted. It's a different conversation. How do you contextualize death, death from sickness? Well, I would say that we show up here, we experience life, and then when for various reasons, the body, it could be environment, it could be diet, it could be a whole bunch of other different things, including our psychology, 
When the body is no longer useful for this experience, we leave it and drop it. We put so much importance on the body that we think that we are the body. But I'm saying that the body is just a vehicle of expression through which the spirit and soul expresses itself. So the body serves its purpose on this three-dimensional plane. And when it has served its purpose or is no longer can function at the level that it needs to function for you to be in this experience, then you can lovingly lay it down. I don't consider death an enemy. I consider it an aspect of what we call the experience of living. We encounter death through many ways before we can end up with what we call bodily death. The death of being a, a baby, a toddler, an adolescent, a teenager, a young adult, or an adult, an older, a mature adult, senior citizen. We go through deaths of relationships. We go through deaths of many things. While we wrestle with physical death is all our lives we've been taught how to accumulate and never how to release. So some people fight their bodies when it's time to leave. One of my good friends, a minister, a lot of people were upset um, a few years ago. She was the assistant minister here at the church I work at. I'm the senior assistant minister. She was the assistant minister, and she made her transition. Uh, She had preached a funeral, seemingly healthy, worked every day, workhorse, prayer warrior, and she just went to sleep and left. And people were like, oh, I mean, it it really rocked the community because she was so well-loved. And I understand that completely, that people had to go through their grieving process. But when people ask me, once I got past the shock of her passing, I said, you know what? If I leave, I want to, if I have the choice of leaving, I want to leave like that. She wasn't sick. She didn't have to have no one take care of her. But she was so spiritual, she wasn't wrestling with her body. So when the soul was like, it's time. She just laid it down. We fight this thing and try to call this thing we call death evil versus recognizing that the soul is, if you can accept the possibility, Brian, I'm not saying you have to, to accept the possibility that we show up here to experience the fullness of life. And even at a higher level, we show up here so God can experience life through us as us. So the life that you're living is the life of God experiencing itself. Now, what is wrong with any of those aspects of it when it's time to lay down aspect of that when it's time to move on to new experiences because I'm the life of God that that never dies in a spiritual sense, not in a physical sense. Everything on this side of the fence comes into existence and comes out of existence. We've made that wrong, and it's not. Something I wanted to cover as we wind down our time, but wanted to cover nonetheless, is this reality of declining religiosity Mm -hmm. in America. We look at statistics and out of American surveyed, and this comes from Pew Research, but just 16% of Americans said that religion holds a paramount importance in their life. If we look at the generations, and we look at religious affiliation from the silent generation onward to Gen Z, we see a steady decline. How do you make sense of that reality? And how does that impact the work that you do at Christ Universal? Well, I think that, uh, you know, this is something that all people, clergy in the different, not only denominations, but religions have to deal with. The pie share is smaller. Let's just deal with that right off the bat. 
people are not necessarily as religiously tuned in as they used to be, which means that it's harder to get people's minds. Also, the benefit of it is if you do get people, especially within a new thought context, you can get them without all of the sometimes religious baggage that sometimes people like you and I show up with our own stuff that happened when we were growing up, et cetera. So that could be a good thing. But from the standpoint of every generation being less and less religious, I think there's a couple of things, Brian. One, people are looking for answers that they don't aren't getting. And that's religion's responsibility. And often when you're trying to sell the, I have the, you're something's wrong with you. I have only remedy. That's problematic. Two, sometimes it's so otherworldly that if I got to be sick, broken, unhappy here, why don't I need religion? Hmm. Okay. So younger people are like Missouri. You have to show them. You're telling me this works. I'm looking at you, you know, and what you're showing me, just like with marriage and many other things, if you're showing me something that you can't show as good, why are you trying to sell it to me? What ends up happening often is because people join religious movements and their lives don't radically change. They become zealots of a, of a movement or religious belief, but not zealots of their own life transformation. So their lives are raggedy and they're trying to sell wholeness to people. And younger people, people your age and younger, are not buying it. They're not buying it. They see it's raggedy. Okay. Don't try to tell me that something is raggedy. That's not. So I think that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of dealing with the decline in religion is human beings ask the question, what's in it for me? Let's just be real. What's in it for me? Okay, so people get into religious belief to promote other people up, getting what they need to sustain their own, which is a part of part one, which sustains their own individual lives. They're trying to figure out, why am I supporting this? All right. And they're seeing division and conflict and things of that nature. And that's problematic for them. Now, I do have an answer for that. I believe that people are people wherever you go. And sometimes people put an unrealistic expectation on religious leaders. In other words, they expect us to be perfect, never have conflict, never have problems, et cetera. The third thing is, can I just talk about the black culture? We're both African-American. I'm assuming that. I'm assuming you're African. Oh, I'm black, black. <laughs> black, black. Black, black. Like, like <laughs> CB4 black. <laughs> That's where they came from, CB. I'm black, y'all. Our subculture has become mainstream. And in my opinion, that's problematic. In other words, when I was growing up, there were understood things that were considered street, and there were things that were considered mainstream, and then there were things that were considered more religious or holy. You can live a decent life with understanding just mainstream, certain levels of morals and things of that nature. But the subculture that was, you know, at times violent and misogynistic specifically, the drug, drug abuse, the language, denouncement of educational advancement and other things of that nature ended up becoming a thing that became mainstream to the point to where it's almost choking out the contemplation of that which is higher and holy. And I don't mean holy from the standpoint of righteous, you know, self-righteous behavior. So I think that's also part of the reason why we're seeing the decline. Now, I'm not saying that people have to have go to church to have ethical and moral 
conversations about, you know, how you treat people and what you should do and and what you shouldn't do and things of that nature. I will say this, however, if it's not happening in religious communities, then where is it happening? Hmm. It's not happening in the homes. It's not happening in the schools. It's not happening in the communities. So what ends up happening is we're creating generations of people who are not only less religious, but they're also less spiritual. Not only are they less religious, they're also less, in many ways, compromised with ethics. We're seeing it, and I live in Chicago. You know, it's stuff happening in our communities that did not happen when I was growing up. Not because people were poor, because they were poor then. Not because people didn't have the jobs. They didn't have the jobs then. But what they did have was that praying grandmother. What they did have was that grandfather and that elders in the community that held people to a higher standard. And that's missing now because the generation above mine was so free. And I don't mean, I'm not talking about from a Jim Crow thing. I'm just talking about how they live like that. The pendulum swung from here to self-righteous, too much church, too much that to all the way over here to none of that matters. And we have to figure out the balance. So we have some accountability, not just in our community, but as a nation and as a world. So we can agree upon how we treat fellow human beings. So we can agree upon how a person is different than me. I don't necessarily uh, have to identify with them, but I need to be honoring of the fact that God shows up in these different ways of expressing and believing. If that is the case, then we can create a world that works for everyone without devaluing other human beings. But right now, the value of life, the value of of peace, the value of happiness, the value of joy are all being diminished for resignation and for pessimism. And if we're not going to have empowering conversations in religious communities, then where are we having them? Because the let's take the black church, and I know we got to wrap up. So even the fundamentalist black church with all of its disagreements that I would have with some of the religious theological tenets was the movement that freed America with all of its issues, because the moral authority that they came with was, if this is what we proclaim about Jesus, then how come as a nation we're not doing? So if those conversations are not happening in a church, where are they happening now? And people can say, well, in the podcast and this, that, and other, and all of these things are good because I'm a podcaster, you're a podcaster, whatever. But you got to have people in your lives that can touch you in a way and say, hey, that's not how you show up. Hey, that's not how we do things. Hey, you're better than this. Hey, how can I support you to get you to where you need to be? To have some type of ethics about how we show up, how we dress, how we talk to people. Why are people showing up in a room full of elders cursing like they're on the basketball court at the park? Where are the values? So I'm a person of believes in absolute freedom, but freedom is not the absence of responsibility and accountability. That's the difference. So even when I critique the Christian movement because lived it my whole life in the church community. I don't want to devalue what was actually brought to the table specifically for our community, even when I critique the things that didn't work. So let me just stop there because I know we got to wrap up, but no, that no, was a long you. thing thank to say, you. but yeah. thank you for that. Thank you for breaking that down. I definitely want to give you the last word as we've had this 
this really big conversation, talking through new thought, getting a bit of an introduction into metaphysics, and then also understanding how that exists in juxtaposition to what many of us were taught and believed growing up. So for those who are listening, who want to learn more from you, hear more from you, and are venturing in life and what have been tumultuous years, every all the years are tumultuous, but even more so in these last few years and going on next year into a presidential election, what are the words that you have in closing? Well, first of all, check out my podcast, Truth Transforms with Reverend Galen McDowell. That I've been teaching this podcast for 11 and a half years. You can go back and study many subjects on prayer, healing, uh, Bible interpretation, spiritual law, consciousness development, prosperity. I've covered the gambit of it. Two, I want you to go on YouTube and watch a video I did titled New Thought, The Science of Mental and Spiritual Mastery. What I did there was I wanted to create something. This is during the pandemic when everybody was panicking. I wanted to give something that the ministry could give to say, these are the fundamentals. I'm not saying don't be a good citizen or whatever. What are the fundamental tenets of new thought? What do we teach and why do we teach it? Because it was written out in framework. It would be much better than me speedballing. I'm still going to say something, but I want to make sure that people have access to that. And I have some other seminars that are also online, Visualize for Success, Developing Your Mind for success, ask and receive. These are seminars I put online along with different sermons that I've done. So if you go on YouTube, Galen McDowell, you look me up, you'll find a bunch of stuff. And if you go to our YouTube page, CU Temple, CU in the word temple, you'll be able to pull all those things up. Now, got that out of the way. What I would say is this, as you're wrestling with often your life issues, recognize that happiness is often, I ain't gonna say often, it's determined based upon where you are in life and where you think you should be. And often what ends up happening is we have this belief in our mind, this is where I should be. And the closer we are to it, we're happier. The further we are from it, we're less happy or not happy at all. So what what do you have to do when you're living in that type of circumstance? You either have to change the belief or you get to work to get to your ideal. That's one level, I would say. Second thing, five fundamental things that uh, we teach in, in our ministry. One is the omnipresence of God. What does that mean? That God is omnipresent, which and if God's essential nature and character is omnipresent, it means good as potential is present. You still have to have the consciousness to experience and express it. Number two in this five, the divinity of humankind, that everyone is made in the image and likeness of God, that you're already spiritually whole, that there's something radically right about you, that there is a divine wholeness within you. No matter how much your life is broken as you perceive it, you are not your experiences. You have experiences. Just like a hurricane has the eye within the storm and the eye is always calm no matter what is going on around it. There's a spiritual wholeness within you that is always perfect, whole, and complete, regardless of your relationships, regardless of your money situation. If you're in a hospital bed laying down, uh, laid up in a hospital bed, the real, authentic, spiritual you is always whole. The third thing out of these five things is the value and power of thought, that you cannot outperform your own consciousness. Life cannot be radically different from than how you think, feel, and believe. So, you give meaning to life in and of itself. So just because you experience the thing does not mean it has to disempower you. 
your ability to think, to choose and decide moves providence. It moves life in a particular direction. I wish I had more time to teach that, but maybe he'll invite me back and we can talk about that. Number four, practicing the presence. You have to develop a life of prayer. And when I say prayer, I'm not talking about begging and beseeching. Luthal uses what we call affirmative prayer. We affirm the positive. We affirm the spiritual and the constructive. We don't put any time on talking about what's broken. We put our minds on what it is that we're seeking to manifest. So you need time for the affirmative prayer. You need time for meditation. And meditation is contemplative thought on these spiritual ideas. You need time for the silence. As you contemplate truth, it leads you to a place that's beyond words and thoughts. That's the mystical union between the spiritual you and the soul you, the divine spark within you and your awareness or consciousness. I can't tell you what happens in the silence of your soul. You have to have that. That's why it says that he who dwelleth in the secret place of the most high shall dwell under the shadow of the almighty. This is why it says, be still and know that I am God. When you get there, you transcend what you call human consciousness. Fifth thing, the law of demonstration. Real simple. Thoughts and feelings demonstrate thoughts held in mind produce after their own kind. You can't plant a watermelon seed and get cabbage. This is a universe that is governed by law. Two dogs make a dog. Dogs and horses can't produce anything. So when you understand that thoughts held in mind produce after their own kind, and this is a universe of cause and effect, that what that you are also a mental being that is always radiating and attracting experiences into your life. Individually and collectively, we do it as a whole based upon universal law. Some people call this the secret, the law of attraction. I use the old school term, law of mind action. Thoughts held in mind produce after their own kind. There's a law of causation in the universe. And because there's a law of causation in the universe, never try to get something for nothing. Recognizing that your thoughts, your feelings, your your beliefs, your words, your actions, your reactions are part of a larger divine law that will bring back to you, press down, shaking together and running over that which is dominated in your own consciousness. So when you understand these things, you can get a glimpse of what we're talking about with new thought that you can express and improve your life only up to the level that you can understand who you are in God and who God is in you. Hopefully that was a good synopsis, prayerfully. Thank you you so much, Reverend, for coming on the podcast. Of course you will be invited back because we have so much more to unpack. And I I love your expertise and I love where you come from with your perspective. And so really thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. I'm glad to, you know, I'm glad Lola hooked us up. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of BC's Corner. If you love this conversation, feel free to like, to follow, to subscribe, and also to share. And if you really liked us, feel free to go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you so much for being a part of this community, and we'll see you soon.